Welcome to the New Books Network. Benvenuti to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Good to have you with us again. And I hope you enjoyed the recent episodes we put out, especially the one I just did with Stuart Baldwin. For long-term listeners, it must have been a pleasant surprise to have him back on. And I think our discussion was fruitful and stimulating, at least it was for us. In today's episode, I am talking to David L. McMahon again, Professor of Religion at Franklin and Marshall College in the States. Now, if anything, the Imperfect Buddha podcast has been a rallying cry for the disruption of the myths that abound in the world of Buddhism and meditation. It has taken this route not as an act of petulance, refusal, aggression, or disappointment, but rather as an act of service to ourselves and others who may have found themselves facing unusual terrain after engaging with Buddhism over the long term. Many myths do abound regarding both practice, the purpose of practice, the historical roots, the claims of teachers, the expectations of specific outcomes of practices, the prioritization of a certain form or style of practice over another, and the infusing of Western values into what is, and in some cases remains, a rather exotic set of religious or spiritual practices. For those of us who refuse to act only on faith but engage our brains in thinking critically about all this, David L. McMahon's original book, The Makings of Buddhist Modernism, was a godsend, full of fascinating historical, philosophical and religious studies information. It enabled many of us to fill in the gaps of our working knowledge on the more dysfunctional side of Buddhism, but also more broadly in our understanding of why Buddhism in the West developed in a certain way and behaves in certain ways. And that book remains a cornerstone for a critical engagement. In our second interview with David, we discuss his newest book, Rethinking Meditation which continues where Buddhist modernism left off. In this text, David wakes readers up to context and the role it has in the stories Western Buddhists have constructed around this wonderful topic called meditation. As a religious studies professor and historian, David does this through reconstructing the history 
that has produced many of the ideas that are so prominent today regarding meditation and, of course, mindfulness. It's a fascinating book and we go through key sections and concepts in our discussion that will be relevant to both critics and practitioners alike. The book is well worth your time if you, like us, take a critical approach to practice, results and claims. Apologies to listeners, I had a cold whilst recording this interview. Uh, We have another wonderful interview for you today with a returning guest, David McMahon. And we're going to be discussing his very interesting contribution to the world of contemporary Buddhism, which is called Rethinking Meditation. If you enjoyed his last text, Exploring the World of Buddhist Modernism, you're certainly going to get a lot out of this one. And just like his previous book, it's highly readable, accessible, even to non-academics like myself and therefore many of you. Now, David, thanks for coming on. I'd like to start with this question and we'll see if the reference works for you or not. (laughs) So I love the idea of dispatches from the world of meditation that starts off your introduction. It actually made me think of a Wes Anderson film. Now, let's begin there. Why did you need to start with a range of dispatches? Well, yeah, I've I've, um, sort of peppered these things called dispatches from the worlds of meditation throughout the book. And uh, just to give a little bit of a sense of of the lived experiences of actual people who have meditated in various uh, social and historical contexts. And so they include, uh, you know, little bits on uh, mindfulness that my college puts out every Monday, a little sort of poster to the students and faculty, you know, giving very, very uh, um, easy invitations to take a few breaths and sort of descriptions of what it's supposed to be doing to your brain or uh you know dispatches from ancient buddhist worlds in in india from from things like the terigata uh, poems by uh buddhist nuns and uh, so i'm i'm trying to give a little bit of a sense of the variety of different types of meditation that have come down to us and sometimes make it to popular consciousness and sometimes don't Mm. so partly then i guess you're you're trying to disrupt this unitary image of meditation being a single thing very much yeah yeah okay so you describe two powerful meditative meditative experiences of your own and you mentioned how gibberish was the result when you tried to to write about the second one which i'm sure is an experience uh, others have had Uh, you also mentioned the buddhist trope of not discussing claims yet We clearly need to develop a language for discussing powerful subjective experiences. One of the risks, at least I think, is that if you don't, um, those kinds of experiences become locked inside what we might think of as personal mythologies. Um, Also, I think when they're not discussed in the wider culture, they, they often end up becoming naive, dysfunctional, or merely kind of insular confirmation of existing beliefs. What do you think about that? Because it's obviously, it is tricky, and there are problems with trying to describe far-out experiences. I guess the same could be true for people taking psychedelics. But I think we do need to try and perhaps consider the idea that we could 
even come together with some kind of new language for coming at those. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I, I think the, um, you know, the, the caution in Buddhist literature about discussing meditative experiences, I think, is geared more, more towards uh, using them as a kind of tool of, of self-aggrandizement or, you know, mm. sort of establishing one's authority or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think there is a welcome um, move in academic studies these days towards a, a greater respect for first-person experience mm-hmm. and uh, a kind of opening in, in uh, cognitive psychology and, and uh, you know, that wasn't there really when I was in in uh, college that, uh, you know, kind of opens the door for, for more discussion and nuanced uh, understandings of personal experience. And of course, you mentioned psychedelics. We have a, a kind of uh, revitalization of research on psychedelics these days. So more people are, are describing their experiences with, with these altered states of consciousness. So, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I think the, the the traditional caution still applies, but I do think that I'm all in favor of trying to develop a rich vocabulary for discussing uh, mm. personal experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Good. Now, you discussed this um, formulation, let's call it that, of the standard version of meditation. Now, can you tell us a bit about that and say why it matters to the thesis of your book? Mm. Well, you know, I mentioned uh, all these different uh, types of meditation and the Buddhist tradition is a huge repository of, of various meditation traditions and, and practices. You know, just in the Theravada tradition, you have the the Visuddhimagga, which I think in mm-hmm. translation is about 900 pages, and that's just from one tradition, right? So there are a huge variety of meditative traditions, and most of them have gotten filtered out, and of of our contemporary cultural context. Uh, and there are a number of different reasons for that. Um, some are very mobile and some are very not. Some are some sort of get uh, magnetically drawn towards ways of experiencing the world and ways of talking about things that we already have in place in contemporary Western culture. And so uh, I think the, the, the one kind of meditation that has become sort of the standard version is um, has been partially defined by uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is a, a very um, de-religionized, secularized version of certain uh, meditative practices that have come down to us from Buddhist traditions. And it involves not the non-judgmental observation of experience in, in the present moment. And so a lot of people, when they think of mindfulness and meditation, that's kind of what they think of. And, and it determines a lot, a lot of what gets studied in academic studies and scientific studies of meditation. And, um, you know, as I say in the book that I, I have nothing whatsoever against that practice. I, I think it's a useful practice. I've recommended it to people. I've done it myself and I, I find it interesting and, and helpful. Mm. Um, but I think it's it's taken up so much space that it has uh, sort of blocked other possibilities for thinking about what meditation is, and uh, you know it sort of encourages yeah, a certain uh, standardized way of, I mean, of looking you at use what this mindfulness phrase is. Of it, it's taken up so much space. Do you think there is potential for other practices to emerge within the sort of collective consciousness about what meditation can be? 
Or do you think this is pretty much, this is the end of it? Mindfulness will continue to be the kind of standard as far as the general public is concerned? Uh, no, I think there is a lot of room. And, and you know, things do continue to um, to expand in terms of our, our awareness of, of these practices and, and different teachers end up teaching different things. And so, yeah, I think it is certainly if you get beyond just the... Um, most accessible way of thinking about and practicing mindfulness meditation, which is, you know, go to the the local uh, health club mm -hmm. and take their meditation class. Then you're going to get the standard version, right? But if you go down the street to the to the Dharma Center, you might get something very different. You know, so different Buddhist traditions that, uh, even if they are very modernized in a way, they are teaching a number of different traditions, and uh, so. You know, I guess the question is, will they make it into sort of, uh, mm. you know, so-called secularized contexts? You know, the the standard version really was made for uh, a secularized context, and it it was it was very tailored to that environment. Uh, the extent to which other practices like that yeah. can yeah. can take up that uh, kind of space concept is, is you a use, which. I find fascinating um, is the social imaginary. But I think it's a concept that a lot of people will not be familiar with. Could you tell us a little bit about it and why it might be useful for intelligent practitioners to know about it and maybe even think about it? Yeah. So this is a, a concept that's been used a lot uh, recently in uh, social sciences and humanistic thought. And I think it's a, a sort of development of, of the earlier concept of the life world coming out of phenomenology. And the life world was was something that, that philosophical phenomenology came up to try and describe the world of, of immediate experience that we all really live in. It, it's the real world that, that we inhabit, the world that, you know, where you have a doorknob and you reach your hand out and turn the doorknob without consciously thinking about lifting your hand and what the mechanics of, of the doorknob are doing to make it open uh when you drop a pencil you know it's going to go to the to the floor and not float up into the sky uh, you kind of know how to talk to people and make things happen in the social world and and in the scientific world the phenomenologist's point is is really a kind of second order uh abstraction from that world um, so we, we usually reverse it. We usually think, well, the, the world of atoms and molecules is the real world, and, and we live in this kind of other world. But really, this is the only world we know. It's the, it's the life world. So if we if we take that and sort of uh, emphasize a little bit more the social and cultural aspects of it, you get to the idea of a social imaginary, which is not only the ideas that people have about their lived world, um, you know, that that I get into a car and drive and I know what a red stop sign means and, and so on. Uh, but also uh, sort of the, the default intuitions are kind of not so articulated uh, ideas and assumptions and attitudes and orientations that we have that are deeply informed by culture, but never, often don't really rise to the level of explicit thought. And so, you know, we're, we're all sort of living in these social imaginaries. And um, the reason it, it becomes important, I think, in the study of meditation is that often meditation has been dis 
described in the West as a way to transcend all of mm -hmm. social and cultural conditioning and get to a kind of pure experience of things as they are. And I'm not really making a, a statement on whether or not that's true, but I think the way that that's been discussed is is a little misguided and, and mm. sort of, you know, what I think of as kind of a premature universalism, <laughs> you know, that it, maybe it gets back to what we were just talking about. You know, you have an extraordinary experience <laughs> and and you think, ah, that's it. Reality as it is, I've, I've encountered it. <laughs> and, you know, and then, you know, a, a year later you think, eh, maybe I was, maybe it was, I was just sort of under the influence of a particular book I was reading at that point or something like that. So, you know, it's really hard to, to just extract ourselves completely from uh, the, the social and cultural world. So part of what I'm doing in this uh, rethinking of meditation in this book is to very much rethink the idea of cultural context social context and the role that that plays not just in our lives generally but in meditation practice itself uh, because i think that generally speaking social influence social context social conditioning has been uh mm -hmm. construed as something you want to transcend you want to get away from <laughs> yeah, just a little bit <laughs> i think it's actually a little bit more complicated yeah than that. and in relation to that you bring up a debate <laughs> which i was quite happy to see between uh, Robert Foreman and Stephen Katz uh, on pure experience. And my question, you, you've kind of answered it slightly. So I'll rephrase it because I think it's useful. So pristine awareness is, is pretty much a non-negotiable for many practitioners. Okay, so you said you're not taking a position on that. So how would you go about, do you think, at least trying to encourage such diehard believers that it may be worth considering the the the, the, the dynamic, the debate, the context? Of that kind of assumption a little bit more carefully or at least being a little bit more thoughtful about the possibility that pristine awareness may not actually exist or it may exist only within a context how would you go about at least encouraging people to consider a slightly bigger picture yeah um well i guess um <laughs> You know, in my own experience, I've become maybe just a little more modest. Uh, you know, I think when I was a younger person, I was really interested in just, you know, blowing my mind out of its of its current categories and ways of thinking and having some kind of drastic altered experience. And, you know, I had a couple of those, and but I still have to go back and, you know, go to the bathroom and buy you know, groceries and stuff like that. And so really the, the question as I've gotten older is more kind of, well, how do you live in the world? And does meditation help you do that? Regardless of whether we have, you know, big altered experiences or whether there's something after this world or something like that. Uh, and I think, you know, I, as I talk to people, a lot of people feel that way. So, I mean, one, one answer to that, I guess, is just to think about what meditation actually is doing for you. What is it? Is it setting up some kind of ideal that you're trying and trying and trying to reach of something beyond of something you know that's going to be a kind of end point that's going to solve all your problems and um uh you know render you completely secure in your life and and never you know have any doubts anymore or you know do we have a, a more modest goal of of you know having meditation as a as a tool for or actually helping one live in the world in a, in a saner and, and more ethical way. Uh, so that's one thing. I think um, 
the other thing is that uh, taking things that seem like objective features of the world and of one's experience and examining them in a way that makes you suddenly realize that they're not so absolute and that they're actually contingent and uh, in process and uh, dependent on other things. Well, that's a very Buddhist endeavor. <laughs> so in some ways, I, I think that, that um, you know, discovering that, you know, some of the things that we might have taken as, as fixed constituents of our world and, and realizing that they're not, there's a kind of liberation in that that is very much parallel to, I think, what a lot of Buddhist philosophy uh, has been doing. And, and it's been an influence on the way I think of it, too. Great. Yeah, that, that second response is, is very helpful. And I would agree. Yeah. Now, you caught me by surprise at one point because you use this phrase, the mindfulness wars. Now, obviously, <laughs> we live in an age in which, especially in America, you know, it, you can turn almost anything into a war, can't you? Yes. Um, <laughs> So why why the mindfulness wars? Because I, I literally have never heard of this before. Well, yeah, maybe this is a, a sort of quiet war that <laughs> <Not too> many <laughs> people know about. Uh, uh, but uh, I think, you know, there, there's been, I would say, over the last 20 years or so in America, at least, uh, a sort of mindfulness uh, hype in the sense that there's been a lot of, of scientific study of meditation that then has been uh, in some ways to some of the, the researchers uh, the chagrin overhyped in the popular media. And there's been a kind of backlash against the, the idea of mindfulness as a kind of panacea for all problems, uh, health problems and, and uh, mental health problems and so on. Um, but there's also been, you know, some really uh, kind of interesting critiques of how mindfulness is sometimes used. Uh, and I'm thinking of, of, of maybe the most uh, prominent one is, is Ron Purser's critique of, of what he calls McMindfulness, uh, mindfulness in, in corporate settings where, uh, you know, I guess if we can summarize the, the argument, it's, you know, we have this these toxic corporate cultures in which, you know, you're expected to be on call 24 hours a day and, and, you know, at the office 60 hours a week, but we're going to give you a mindfulness class. And then if, if, if this is all too much for you, well, you're just not being mindful enough, you know? <laughs> so, so it sort of uh, transfers all the responsibility for uh, human well-being onto the individual and uh, it tends to make these institutions absolve themselves of any responsibility. So, you know, that's one sort of salvo in the mindfulness wars, I guess. And then there are other people who would who would come back and say, hey, you know, we, we don't really know what the effects of mindfulness might be in, in corporate culture. Maybe there's a kind of bottom up transformation of, of cultural of, of corporate worlds that, that could happen through, uh, uh, you know, employees being uh, more mindful and more thoughtful about their about what they want and what they don't want. And, I think the jury's still out on that. I, th I think, you know, there there is, I, I am concerned about meditation becoming too corporatized and too commercialized and too trivialized. Uh, on the other hand, um, I'm not against casual meditation and, and um, 
uh, sort of meditation light if it helps people and they don't want to you know necessarily commit to something really uh, heavy duty uh, I think uh, you know these practices can be used on a lot of different levels uh, there's also kind of I guess part of the mindfulness wars is you know an evaluation of the scientific research uh, there's a lot of um, enthusiasm about some of the scientific research that's, that's going on and then a lot of people who say look you can't you, you can't really uh, make such big claims about meditation based on blood flow and that can be detected on an fMRI machine or e, you know, EEG waves or something like that yeah. mm-hmm. so perhaps it's a war between who gets to have the last word on what mindfulness actually is yeah yeah what how it works and what work it does and so on yeah yeah okay so i've seen some of that going on and i guess it's interesting i I think the risk with all of these things is that people take an absolutist position and miss the nuance um i guess from what you're saying is that one of the concerns we might have if we care about such things is that it doesn't end up being dominated by the sort of superficial commercial um utilitarian approach that allows it to be adopted by well not just corporations but the the american armed forces as well that's another example of how it's used yeah. right yes yeah. definitely okay so um a couple more words that you use and they're charming words and it's interesting perhaps to discuss them for how they might open up certain patterns of thinking or the process of uh, investigating buddhism from a a wider perspective uh they are filters and magnets can you can you tell us a bit about those two and why they're in your book yeah the idea of filters again is is the idea that there's there's just a huge variety of meditative practices and ideas about meditation and theories around meditation that simply get filtered out by uh much contemporary uh writing on meditation and uh teaching on meditation uh, simply because they just it's not that people disagree with them or or think they're crazy but they just don't really make it onto the map because they are quite different and 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 operate with different assumptions perhaps background assumptions and uh, different social imaginaries than the one that we have uh operating in our uh, contemporary western world and um what is it that makes it through well, there are things that that are kind of magnetically pulled to uh, our sort of indigenous discourses, things like uh, scientific rationalism, things like uh, romanticism, uh, transcendentalism, and their their uh, successors, uh, things like psychology. So, th- so practices that can be articulated or rearticulated in, in those languages tend to uh, make it through the filters and uh, take up a, a place in contemporary Western culture. Uh, again, it's not it's not it's something that I'm observing. It's not something that I'm um, you know wringing my hands about too much. But I think it is something to be aware of. Uh, you know that there when we again when we say meditation, we usually you know unless we're we're geeking out on Buddhism like you and I do uh, when we say meditation we just have kind of one or two things in mind and uh again we're sort of neglecting the diversity of all these practices that that uh, are waiting at the at the gates good yeah the question of what is lost when these social practices emerge is is always an interesting one right mm, yeah 
So talking about what is lost, well, one aspect of the mindfulness that, that Ron describes is the kind of uh, appreciation for the the ethical consequences of you know training people just to be better capitalist subjects, as Zizek might also add to that conversation. You talk right. about ethics in your book, and in particular, you pick up on the ethics of appreciation, authenticity, and autonomy. Three very powerful words which have a lot of history behind them. Um, why? What are the core issues you tackle through that discussion, and why might they be important? So, yeah, this is in, in the latter part of the book, where um, <clears throat> kind of after making the argument that that uh, basically meditation is not just about sort of getting rid of things, uh, but that meditative practices are a means of, of cultivating particular ways of being in the world, and that these ways of being occur in particular social contexts with repertoires of, of uh, culturally available ideas and ideals and ethical orientations and attitude and sort of uh, default intuitions. So that's kind of the the argument of the first part of the book, and then in the second part of the book, I'm I'm kind of looking at how meditation makes a home in contemporary Western thought, and I uh, I do that in part by looking at these ideas of appreciation and um, autonomy and uh, you know, some other ideas, and so of course autonomy, freedom is a big word in the West, and the idea that uh, meditation might lead to greater freedom you know, goes back to the beginning of, of meditation. Um, but as it moves into the, the contemporary Western sphere, we hear the word freedom, and, and you know we can't help but think certain uh, versions of freedom that uh, are, you know, unique to our time. And so we're talking about social freedom, we're talking about uh, internal freedom, uh, freedom in the sense of being free from, uh, and this is under the the, um, the influence of, of kind of rationalistic philosophy, Descartes, Kant, and so on. Freedom, one aspect of freedom for them meant freedom from the passions, you know, the freedom from uh, the influence of emotion, you know, and, and they were interested in, in a kind of rational uh, uh, way of being in which, you know, you, you would see the emotions as a kind of distractions from your rational processes and the rational, you know, the, the dominance of the rational part of you is what allows you to be ethical and make choices that are not just governed by your, your impulses and emotions. And uh, so I think Initially, Buddhism sort of came in under the the, the guise of some of those ideas that that uh, uh, meditation was about sort of rising above the um, the emotions, and in some cases even rising above rationality. And I think um, it might be better to think of meditation, though, as you know, coming especially from the early literature, I give some examples in which uh, it was a little more nuanced than just trying to suppress or or uh, get emotions under control, because there are meditation practices that really cultivate certain emotions. You know, you're, you're supposed to cultivate, for example, um, 
loving kindness towards other people. And there are meditation practices that that foster these emotional states towards other people, loving kindness, compassion, uh, empathetic joy. And uh, in traditions where the object is to really transcend the whole world, there's there are practices that involve cultivating a kind of disgust for the body, for death, for you know the, the biological processes of eating and so on. And so these are all, you know, it, it complicates the idea that, that meditation is all about just sort of rising above the emotions. So um, in the chapter on autonomy, I, I sort of make an argument that <clears throat> maybe the the way to think about meditation and autonomy is not that it is designed to sort of create an inner citadel in which uh, one is sort of isolated from the effects of the world um, and setting up a kind of interior space of that's invulnerable uh, to the external to external influences, uh, thus allowing kind of freedom to choose and decide and act for oneself. Um, but rather a kind of a model of situated autonomy, uh, which is a more contextual notion of freedom and ethical agency as embodied, uh, as embedded in social contexts, and as systemically entwined, really, with, with other individuals, with social institutions, with, with uh, political structures. And in this sense, it sees social roles as as uh, conditioned and limited, but also recognizes that they they still inform life in in the world and have to be addressed. Yeah. Hmm. There are several things you mentioned in there I liked, but as a kind of response, what you're arguing for is a far more imminent view of of practice and less transcendent. Yeah, that's true. And again, I'm I'm not. Uh, that's not necessarily to say that I I think there's nothing to. Um, you know, a a, uh, a transcendent orientation. I'm not one to to criticize somebody who wants that that uh, that approach. But you know, that's just what I'm interested in studying in this book. The, mm. the more imminent aspects. Yeah, yeah. Although I think that the transcendent model obviously has a history too, and it's it's embedded in certain ideals and romantic notions which you explore in your your previous book that mm. do tend yeah. to lead to the, some of the problems that you and I might be noticing or be be critiquing um and it's tricky again right i mean if you want to take a kind of appreciative view as well as an academic or just as somebody who critiques but with a certain amount of kindness i guess infused with it um yeah who who would want to stop somebody from engaging in some kind of transcendent practice if it makes their life better or if mm -hmm. it brings them some relief from whatever i think the point that's interesting is to to critique the excesses of that kind of position right where yeah you know, some of the notions of enlightenment, going back to the point we were discussing before, um, taking these transformative, transcendent experiences as the be-all and end-all, or somehow a mirror to, to life as it is beyond this mundane physical stuff that, as you were also suggesting, many models of meditation try to get away from. Uh, it's yeah. an old story, and it does tend to lead to dysfunction. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and it is really an old story. I think this is a tension that, that goes back very early in Buddhism. I mean, the, the Mahayana movement itself 
is sort of a, in part a reaction against a, an overly transcendent uh, mm, view mm. Of, of the goal of Buddhism. And so, you know, the goal of, of becoming an arhat and just sort of leaving the world behind and, and enjoying uh, eternal bliss is, is not compassionate enough. So, you know, they adopt the bodhisattva idea, which is, you know, be enlightened in the world and help other people. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find it. I find it difficult not to have a slightly snobbish view about all that, and that I think that, you know, historically speaking, I can only speculate, of course, that the Mahayana does develop as a practical response in many ways to those limitations or that question of what do we do with ourselves? Because <laughs> obviously, a bunch of meditators sitting around in a hall somewhere are not really mm-hmm. producing much in the way of benefit for the wider culture. You could probably argue against that too. So that's. Let's not head off in that direction. It's it's complicated, isn't it? It's very complicated. <laughs> I'd like to take a step back. I jumped ahead with that question about ethics. Because ethics is so often forgotten about, because that in itself does beg the question of what should I do about a human life, right? And how should I make use of these practices in terms of whether I do any good or whether I give a shit about people around me or not, or problems in Gaza or the Ukraine, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, meditation in context, though, is the kind of the second section of the book. And what I wanted to try and do was pick out something from each section that they're very rich. These are what you call uh, social imaginaries in the plural. So instead of them being dispatches, they're a kind of reflection on the social imaginary of a specific context and time. But we can't discuss the whole lot. So I'm going to pick out a couple of key words from each one and maybe you can add or say whatever you think might be most most interesting. So this is Meditation in Context, Section 2. And you talk about meditation in the Pali social imaginary, and there's one and two here. You talk about the phenomenology and ethics of monastic mindfulness, which you've touched on already to some degree, but indirectly. Can you say something about these two, which stand out for me? Meditation is self-cultivation in the Pali suttas and then mindfulness and the habitus of monastic comportment. Well, <clears throat> I was thinking about this in, in the larger context of imagining a kind of tension mm. between the far sort of transcendent goals of meditation, as stated in this early literature, mm-hmm. and the more immediate ways in which uh, meditation is an aid to cultivating certain kinds of living in the world. Mm. And because meditation was initially developed within monastic communities. Uh, I was looking at some of these uh, meditation texts uh, in conjunction with the Vinaya, which is the the rules for monks and nuns, and thinking about what kinds of of people that meditation was trying to cultivate. And it ends up being looking like a very different uh, kind of model of how to act in the world then we might be used to thinking of meditation cultivating it in, in our world. Um, you know, it's it's very controlled. It's it's a very rule-bound. And of course, these texts, you can't necessarily take them at all as guides to understanding what's happening on the ground, but they do present ideals. And uh, if we look at, at some of the, the ways that um, are suggested, say, for something very popular today with like mindful eating well mindful eating really in the in the, the vinaya and the polytext is you know minimal eating and don't enjoy it 
(laughs) (laughs) Don't savor it because this is something you need to really sort of rise above your your attachment to the pleasures of food. Uh, So this is sort of, you know, anticipating something later on where where I talk about the ethic of appreciation, you know, that's really infused our understanding of meditation today, that it helps us appreciate our experiences and uh, otherwise we're just kind of missing our lives. But in the Pali uh, context, they were really trying to to develop something very specific, I think, and and that is, uh, you know, they were they were really trying to transcend uh, too much phys- attachment to any kind of physical uh, pleasures or, or physical sensations, and um, so I, I talk about um, the the fact that this is a, a pretty countercultural movement that is really trying to. Uh, set up a, a very new way of being, and uh, the monastic way of being uh, was was uh, highly disciplined and um, and uh, you know really trying to uh, cultivate sensibilities that were that are quite different from mm. uh, how we might imagine them today. Mm. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Plus, I like the fact that you phrase that question: "What kind of people?" Is it trying to cultivate? It's interesting to view it as an active participant in this process of of producing the idea of a meditator in a given space. I mean, mm-hmm. it's quite straightforward on the one hand, but to think to phrase it in that way gives the text a certain amount of creative power that maybe we don't think about usually. Now, in the second Pali social imaginary, you pick up on again. It's related to what you were just saying with eating, but corporeal and cognitive mindfulness. And the two bits that stand out for me here are the first two, really. I'm I, I just curious to see what you're going to say here. The body as it is. So we know as it is, is often pertaining to some kind of external reality, which some Buddhists believe they will be able to perceive or experience fully with enough meditation. But here you're going for the body. And then corporeal crisis. So what's going on with those two? Yeah. Well, you know, again, it's it's the idea of cultivating certain attitudes towards the body. Mm. Uh, when we do, a, a, you know, when we, we take a, a class today in mindfulness, we might be invited to do a body scan, which really goes back to these early texts. And, but the idea is, you know, you kind of scan your body and it's very relaxing and you, you there's the background idea seems to be you, you want to accept your body and mm. and uh, even celebrate just the, the wonder of having a body. Uh, but here... It's really like you know your body is gross, <laughs> and and you know, there's all this stuff inside it, this slime, and it goes through lists. And and this is again, this is in the context of a meditation. You're supposed to yeah. imagine what it is that's inside your body, intestines and feces and urine and blood and bile, and so it's really trying to gross you out and and make you feel like oh I don't want to be a part of this. And uh, from there, from from grossing you out. It, takes you to the kind of existential freaking you out, which is you go to the cremation ground and you watch the bodies disintegrating. And again, it goes in loving detail of, uh, you know, what happens to a dead body. It turns blue and gets bloated and, and, you know, oozes and jackals come and tear it apart. And pretty soon it's just, it's bones and dust. And so now that's an example, again, of, seeing the body, uh, yata bhutam is, is the Pali phrase, as it is. And again, in our kind of post-enlightenment uh, rationalist mindset, we immediately go to, when we th- when we think of this phrase, as it is, we think of a kind of scientific model of that. Mm. But I think 
something a little bit different in these texts. They're trying to highlight an aspect of the body that you would not otherwise notice, that we might be kind of blind to. Mm. Uh, you know, what's inside and, and you know, and again, this is this is tuned to a kind of monastic key, uh, you know, part of the the um, idea of of cultivating a kind of disgust for the body is that, you know, you don't want to be too attached to it, you want to transcend it, but you also don't want to be lusting after your neighbor's body. So it's, you know, if you think about what's, you might think your neighbor is really good looking, but uh, just think of what's right beneath that surface, you know, those intestines and the bile and everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so that might help to curb, uh, you know, sexual desire and so on. And also, the it's it's kind of fascinating to me. There's a number of stories in, in Buddhist texts that sort of suggest that um, even though premature death must have been quite a bit more common in the ancient Buddhist world than it is in ours. There seems to be this this uh, tendency of, uh, of humans all over to kind of think that death is just something that happens to other people. Mm. And, you know, there's so there's a, a, a felt necessity in these texts that you, you need to go and really confront your mortality and go go to the cremation ground and remind yourself that's what you're going to look like soon and so really you know urgently practice and do what's most important you know yeah these are pretty traditional takes on on meditation and it's interesting yeah. to hear about them again two thoughts really i mean one one is that those are quite distinct practices right i mean thinking contemplating Mm -hmm. yep. Well, an aspect of your body as it is, we might say it that way. It is interesting to think how we avoid that and how bringing that back into practice might be useful. Mm -hmm. Just because it does bring you into a, a, an awareness of your body that you're blotting out otherwise, you're not being willing to consider. It's almost a phobia, right, towards contemplating right. the inner nature of the body. So I think there could be something quite liberating in those terms and perhaps even uh, it does still hold as a meaningful way to um, chip away at our attachment to viewing our body in a very specific way. I mean, the other one, though, I mean, we, we keep reading these articles in the newspapers about the, the crisis in uh, sexual practices amongst young people. <laughs> so I think it probably wouldn't be a good idea to have them contemplating each other's bodies as disgusting <laughs> sights. <laughs> right, right. Because the levels of procreation are going to go down even further and produce all <laughs> right. sorts of further social problems. Contemplating death is is funny, isn't it? I mean, I I started off in quite traditional Buddhist contexts in my late teens, and I remember just thinking how excessive these invitations were to go to graveyards and contemplate death, partly because it felt excessively theatrical, partly because it seemed hyperbolic. We live in such a sensationalist world. Perhaps there are simpler ways to reapproach the question of death. Who knows? But we're also obviously being confronted with death because of the situation in Gaza, the Ukraine, and so forth. I mean, that's one of the other features of the kind of loss of distance in a globalized world. Because it also makes me think about another point, which is, goes back to what you were saying earlier, which is that meditation is very often used nowadays in its secular form as a kind of taking a break from reality, right? It's, mm, a, it's an yeah. opportunity to step out of the intensity of, of, of our own lives, which all seem to be much busier than they used to be, but just this bombardment, not just from media, but social media, 
with this constant overstimulation of our, our, our awareness about just how many bad things are taking place in the world. And I've certainly got sympathy for people using meditation for that. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think there's there's nothing at all wrong with meditation taking on new purposes and new meanings yeah. in the modern world. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think if we all step away from the idea of things being a, a single truth and get away from trying to win a competition between who's right, we'll probably all do a bit better yeah. and have more interesting conversations. But hey, yeah. Okay, so I want to skip the next bit because um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. And I want to look at um, a section entitled Deconstructive Meditation mm. and the Search for the Buddha Within. Either of those would be fascinating topics for a long discussion. We had an expert on Derrida come on a, a while back and we discussed Derrida's deconstruction. Obviously, it gets used with a, a, a new connotation these days. Let's go there. So there, the two I'm going to pick up on are the Dharma game. Uh, this relates to what we've just discussed because it's categories and the way things are. And then the last one, implications of innatism, insinuations of emptiness. So take either as you, as you see fit. Yeah. Well, so uh, what leads all to this is, is that I'm arguing that there's, there is a kind of constructive aspect to meditation that and that involves again not only constructing certain experiences and constructing certain ways of being in the world but also constructing a kind of uh, really constructing a social imaginary and that gets very uh literal in traditions like the abhidharma where you have you know this these long lists of categories through which you are invited to view the world. And these categories, from the perspective of that literature, are sort of the fixed building blocks of the world. And so um, a, a lot of meditation in those traditions are designed to sort of get you in touch and sort of deconstruct your your uh, false notions of a unified self, for instance, and you know dissolve it into the very these various categories. And then when you get to these, these dharmas, they then you've gotten to to things as they are, hmm. and then when we get to uh, the the deconstructive aspect, and I'm not necessarily just mapping this onto Theravada and Mahayana. I think there are hmm. elements of of these in in different traditions, but it's it's uh, amped up quite a bit in the Mahayana. So in in say perfection of wisdom literature, uh, you have the idea that you penetrate these categories and you find that even those really lack any kind of substantial fixed essence uh, some kind of uh, permanent independent reality so um all of this this these categories also are going to fall into the the category of, of conventional truth relative truth and so really in that sense anything that we can conceive of and speak about is uh, in this realm of of kind of relative conventional truth or falsehood. And the ultimate truth, which, again, for the Abhidharma literature was more, you know, getting to the truth of these basic building blocks of of experience, the ultimate truth for the, the perfection of wisdom literature is not really able to be pinned down it's not really it's you, you can't really say it because it's uh it's not sayable as soon as you say it as soon as you create a concept of it then uh, you've brought it into the realm of of uh 
relative truth again. So the object in some of this literature of meditation sort of shifts from, you know, constructing certain attitudes and, and uh, ethical sensibilities and so on to really cultivating this sense of things being empty of inherent self-existence. And that itself was thought to immediately be sort of purifying and have this salutary effect that would that would just naturally make you ethical mm-hmm. and um so that i see i see as a kind of a deconstructive move that again is sort of there already in earlier forms of meditation but it's really cranked up uh, quite a bit in the mahayana literature mm-hmm. and then the the third move so we've got the constructive aspects of meditation the deconstructive and this uh, the innatist is the idea that really we've we've all the radical version at least of of the innatist is that we've got a, a kind of complete buddha already inside of us we've all got buddha nature uh the the more modest view of that is well we've all got the potential to become buddhas and we've all got the potential to become enlightened just like the buddha and we just have to work at it the more radical version which you see in in zen and uh, mahamudra and dzogchen practices is that it, we've already got it. It's already in there. And all we have to do is uncover it. So there's nothing really to cultivate. There's no self-cultivation involved. There's no, you know, nothing you really have to do, nothing you have to change about yourself. You really just have to clear away what's obstructing that that perfect Buddha within. I always feel like critiquing <laughs> all of these positions. Mm-hmm. Just because I think by doing so, you you get to explore how they can also be dimensions of what you might experience or go through within your own practice, right, or within a practice group. They don't have to Mm -hmm. just exist as these kind of idealized um, ends or approaches to practice. Maybe that's one of the advantages we have today in this uh, sort of multivariant, complex, globalized reality we live in. And that's probably a good bridge to the the final thing I'd I'd like to discuss with you, which is actually the last last section of the book. Um, there's one bit I want to ask you about, but I just want to read the the title and the subheadings because I think it will be enticing to uh, listeners tuning into this conversation. Uh, so the title of that is Individualism and Fragmentation in the Mirrors of Secularism, the Ethic of Interdependence. And some of the subheadings are Hand Mirrors and Infinity Mirrors, Modernity in the Fragmentation of the Self, Fragmented Selves and Non-Self, Two Poles of Mindfulness, Secularity, and Interdependence. I'd like to ask you about the last one, which I'm curious about. I have a sense of where you might go with this, um, but I want to ask, Fractal Order and Fragmented Chaos. Tell us a bit about that. Well, so the chapter sort of explores uh, what I see as this tension between... uh, on the one hand, this our inherited ideal from the Enlightenment that we are all sort of unitary selves, and that you know we, we I think uh, the the Cartesian model of the self has sort of embedded itself in our in our everyday experience to some extent. We see ourselves as these you know in, uh, individuals sort of sealed off from the world with thoughts in our heads and and everything else is going on outside of our heads. And um, and yet that that ideal, that sort of image that that many of us have, sort of meets this more recent reality 
that we experience ourselves in 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 a kind of fragmentary form. Uh, we're called upon to play many different roles that probably human beings didn't uh, have to uh, to play before. You know, when when you were sort of in a embedded in a community and most of the people you encountered you already knew and you kind of knew their status and they knew your status and uh you know you probably didn't go too far from your home and, and you know there's a sort of natural uh, taken for granted order of things there but now we're you know we're we're watching the news and we're seeing things that are going on in other parts of the world and and we're getting emails and and seeing uh, tweets and things like that from people all over the place and we're sending out different versions of ourselves in in uh you know not only on electronic media but in just different roles that we're asked to play in our in our everyday lives and so you know i, I talk about a number of different theorists uh who describe the sense of, of fragmentation that uh is a kind of lived reality of, of many people maybe not everybody but uh you know probably of, of many of the people who would read this book um and that that feels very uh kind of vertiginous and 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 um uh disorienting uh particularly because we you know from our kind of philosophical home base in modern western individualism we're called upon to be the singular entity and so this sense of fragmentation feels very uh very disoriented maybe maybe more so because we we tend to think of ourselves as a singular being and so i think um part of the the role that certain buddhist ideas and practices have been called upon to play uh, addresses this situation um what feels like a, a just kind of chaotic uh, a fragmentation of life of of the subject of of you know different social worlds and so on uh can be seen can be recast in some ways as a kind of vast network of of interdependence and uh can be sort of called into a you know what i call sort of a more fractal order and that can happen through meditation you know through sort of uh a, a calm viewing of all these different fragments and uh, not identifying completely or, or trying to make oneself uh, identical with any of any one of them and the idea of of non-self you know to be to sort of become more at home with the idea of not having a singular identity and rather have a kind of plural identities and and uh identities in, in process rather than fixed uh and and um uh meditation too uh can i think uh, has been called upon to address this question and particularly specifically buddhist meditation that is uh trying to bring awareness to the the plurality and and uh process understanding of the self rather than as a, a kind of fixed entity great and those are ways of thinking about the practitioner that i can very much get on board with I think they solve a lot of problems as well when you start to think in that way and it takes you out of that um that dichotomy of, of the authentic true self found somewhere and the inauthentic self that you're supposed to get away from which of course as you've you've mentioned uh, in your pre previous work as well is a key theme that runs through buddhist modernism yeah 
we're running out of time. I just wanted to to give you the space to add anything that you think might uh, be necessary to say or to add. Um, we've talked about quite a bit of the book, but is there anything else you'd, you'd like to add on there? Or you might want to say um, is important from the sections of the text we didn't discuss? Well, you know, I guess um, one of the things that, that I think is might be noteworthy about the book is that I it's a little bit different from a typical academic book, which is often kind of people in a particular specialty writing a, a long, complicated letter to a bunch of other people in that particular specialty. <laughs> so it's, it's like, you know, like a long letter to like 10 other people. Mm. Um, I wasn't really limiting myself to thinking of other religious scholar, religious study scholars or other Buddhist study scholars as the only audience here. Uh, I was also thinking about uh, researchers who are researching meditation in other fields, uh, cognitive mm, psychology, mm. neuroscience, uh, uh, clinical applications, and so on, and also uh, pr practitioners that are interested in, in, you know, sort of geeking out on this stuff. And because I'm, I am addressing, in some ways, not so much uh, received ideas of meditation that we find in scholarship, although to some extent I think we do, but more kind of uh, the popular conception of meditation that we have in, in the West right now, and sort of trying to break that open a little bit. So in that sense, it's it's a little bit of an unusual book. Uh, and it, one of the challenges I had in, in writing the book was to sort of try to keep these audiences in mind and, mm. you know, not, not hoping that I'm not losing the cognitive scientists as I'm going into the sort of cultural <laughs> anthropology issues and and not losing the religious studies scholars as they go into the science stuff. And you know, so it was mm -hmm. a little bit of a juggling act in that way. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, there there are obviously other texts, um, academic texts on meditation out there. Um, some of them are accessible to a general audience, others are not. Yeah. Um, I wonder if this approach you've taken is also a response to um, the success the makings of Buddhist modernism had. Uh, would that be the case or, or not? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, as I as I get on, get older and get into my career further and further, I just feel a little freer to follow my interests and, and mm. do what I want. So mm. um, I, I part of this may have to do with uh, the fact that I teach at a liberal arts college and I'm not like the person who does fifth century Indian Mahayana Buddhism. You know, I can, mm. I can roam mm. kind of freely and, and uh, you know, do a little bit more uh, uh, free ranging uh, exploration of my interests so that's that's what this book is great great good well you do a good service to to all of us so i appreciate it and thank you thank you so much yeah you're welcome thank you for coming on again to speak to us on the imperfect buddha podcast thank you matthew good to talk to you This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, 
I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality and religion. Much of what I have specialised in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, If you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com.